You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. We're getting started today in a, in a series called Defining Discipleship. Defining di- Discipleship. Everybody say defining, and everybody say discipleship. The reason why we want to um, spend some time doing defining discipleship uh, at the very beginning of our year here before we get into Genesis is because um, what you define as a disciple, uh, at least in the church, if, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're somebody that wants to follow in his ways and follow in his words, then what you think of when you think of the word disciple uh, means everything to the way that you do church. Um, if, if, if a disciple is somebody that is really fluent in scripture knowledge, like if that's really important to you and you see somebody that really knows the Bible, like that's what a disciple is, then you would orient the culture of your church and your groups and everything that you do, worship nights, around, you would want to teach that a lot. Like, like you would want to make sure if, if the biggest thing to you was a disciple needs to know about the 66 books of the Bible and has to know about the Old Testament, New Testament, and you know, systematic theology, then you would set up Sunday school classes that taught that because you wouldn't want somebody to be a part of your community, of your family, without knowing a lot about the Bible. If you believe that a disciple um, really wasn't discipling or being a disciple unless they knew how to operate in the prophetic, then meaning like hearing what God is saying in the now and not just in the past, but like really be able to enunciate what God is saying, then you would spend a lot more time training that and equipping that. Maybe times in ministry or in times of one-on-one prayer, in times of worship. And these are all things that we obviously do and care about. But, but, if, but if, if you define a disciple that way, that's what it looked like. I, I, I ran into a guy at Starbucks the other day, and he had such a heart for the poor. And he's like, this is what Jesus is about. Like, he is about feeding the poor. He is about helping the needy. He is about social justice. He is about Micah 6.8. He is about, like, the Lord is about broken people and helping broken people find home. And if that is the way you were to find a disciple, then your ministry would look like that. And there would be types and ways of practicing ministry that wouldn't cooperate with that. And, there's, and you wouldn't want to do that. You'd want to do this other kind of ministry. And so that's why it's important. Before we get started, if the whole point of being on earth, like the reason why we're here is the Great Commission. I'm not in heaven because I can worship in heaven and talk to him in heaven, do all stuff in heaven. But the reason I'm here is to make disciples. If that's why my feet are here, then we've got to define what a disciple is. We have to understand what does it mean to make a disciple? Is it somebody who just invites people to church? Is it somebody that's really just friendly? I mean, what does a disciple mean to you if I asked you that question? If you were to turn to your neighbor and say, what does a disciple mean to you? It's an interesting topic because uh, oftentimes we think it's a, it's a common answer, but everybody has different answers. Everybody has different experiences. And if we're not clear about what that is, then we don't know where to go. And so um, I do ask, Lord, right now, as we just get into your scriptures, would you just... Um, refresh us this morning, you know, like, like help us learn something new and lose our knowedness, that we would just learn something new, that we would, um, we would, we would go to you with a question and not an answer, and that you would, we would hear your response, you know, um, not just what we want to hear um, in Jesus' name. So we want to look at Genesis 1 uh, this morning um, to kind of start, start from the start, and I, and I think, honestly, the, the the issue of first appearance, really, in the scriptures is so powerful. When we go back to, like, the original time that it happened uh, on anything, like hate, anger, lust. I mean, like, when you go back to the original scene, you really do learn a lot about what the word is supposed to mean. But in Genesis 1.26, when, um, when man was created, when Adam and Eve were created, 
uh, Genesis is going to say um, on, on this day that the Lord said, let us make mankind, and it says, in our image. So if you've ever had a baby before, it's like this really weird, startling, but kind of heartwarming thing when your kid comes out and they look like you. Like, all, like why does that little baby have Kyra's face? Like, who put Kyra's face on that little baby, and why does Kyra look like a baby? Like, it's hard to really, like, they come out with a certain eyebrow and their fingers and their hands, and, they, 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 and then they have these mannerisms, you know what I mean? That it's like they spend so much time with you, they, they walk like you, or they, they have different mannerisms or hand gestures, like this hand gesture right here. Alec will do this one sometimes. They look like you. It's just wild, right? And so this is what, what God is doing. It's like he creates uh, man in his image. You know, and all throughout the scriptures, there's this common thread like, it'll say, be holy as I am holy. Holy just means set apart. So the call to man and, and woman will, will continue on in this passage, but like, it's like, I'm going to create you, but I'm not just creating you to be a blank slate. Like, I'm creating you to reflect me. I'm creating you to look like me. I'm creating you to bear my image. And there's no one you've met or seen today that doesn't look like him in some way. We are image bearers or mago day. We look like him. It continues on. It says it like you'll look at it this four different times in the passage is the kind of same derivative of the thought here. And then it says, in our likeness. So there's the theme again. In our likeness, we're going to create man and woman like us so that they may rule over. So here's where we get a new um, extension of this. So they, they look like us, and then they're going to rule over like us, like the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and all over the creatures that move along the ground. I looked up uh, today in Wikipedia, 8.7 million species are on the earth today, uh, and all of them can bear God's glory, but only man can, uh, can represent God's rule. Only man can represent. So it's like a Chick-fil-A kid, when the manager's not there, sometimes does what the manager wants, but then because the manager's not there, doesn't represent the manager, right? So represent, what does that mean? It means that I'm doing what he would have done if he were here. And in the original garden, in the Eden, as you guys know, we're before the fall here, before sin, before chaos and, and cancer and all this stuff, there was this order and, and, and God brought this shalom into the garden. And part of that meant uninterrupted, not only intimacy, uh, interrupted, un, uninterrupted identity with God, like, like I have a name because God named me and I'm, I'm not torn in my identity about who I am and confused. And then lastly, though, there's this rule, there's this extension of authority that I represent him. I do what he would do if he were here, if he were me. I, 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 there's no breach, there's no division, there's no dissonance between like, if he was here, he would do what I'm doing, and as I'm here, I'm doing what he would be doing if he were me. And so that's, that's this extension. I look like him, and I act like him. And it says he's going to, and you're going to rule over all these, these, these things. And then it says, so God created man in his own image. The image of God, here it is again. I mean, he says it 17, seven times here, like, the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then he says, he blesses them. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and increase and fill the earth with my glory, with my dominion, with my authority. Fill it. So, so, so fill that space out here, this void, as there was a darkness and a black and a chaos. I brought order into that. I brought structure. I brought form and function into it. And I want you to multiply that essence into the earth. So God's plan was to take the, the darkness and the chaos and breathe order and life into it, and then he filled more of that space up, not by creating more things, but by multiplying the thing he already created. Because you look like me, because you rule like me, because you do what I would do if I were you, that when you multiply, what looks like you will look like me. 
And what looks like them that you made that look like you will look like me and so on and so forth. That the, the extension of God's kingdom, the expansion of God's kingdom is through multiplication and not addition. And then there's a lie. And this is what's crazy because the lie is the twisted um, misrepresentation of the exact truth of what God originally had said and created. This is what it says. The serpent comes in. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God, not re- did God really say you must eat from any tree in the garden? You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Excuse me. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden that must not touch it or you will surely die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. This is the interesting point to me, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. The very thing that, that was written all over the walls of this creation story, that you were like him and you were made like him and you have hands because he has hands. And you have a heart and emotions and a mind and thoughts because you reflect him and you represent him. He, the, the serpent, this creature of, of, of evil, of deception, slithers into the story now and tells them the exact opposite of what they were created for, which is not only that you're not like God, that you are unlike God and you need to do something to be like him. And everything shatters. Everything is in chaos. I don't know if you've ever lost something in your life before. I brought a MacBook Pro to an FCA one time at Malden uh, High School, and it was my fault. It was nobody else's fault, but I left the MacBook Pro there, and I got out into the parking lot. And how many of you guys know that you could leave lots of different types of things sitting around in public, and nobody would ever care? But some reason, these things have magnets on them, and they just disappear uh-oh, off into uh, the abyss. And I wonder sometimes if we're going to go to heaven and find all those like lost keys and coins and toys and Ghostbuster things that you ever find. Like they literally were there a second ago, and now they're gone. It's just a miracle, but the bad kind of miracle, not the good kind of miracle. They're just gone. Some of us in this room, including myself, we have lost much more than that. Uh, losing, a, losing a toy or losing a computer. You, I've got a brand new computer. You know, God provides. There's lots of things that can be replaced on this earth, but what cannot be replaced is relationship. What oftentimes cannot be replaced is trust. What cannot be replaced is the life of a child. You know, like some of us have experienced deep relational human loss. But I want to submit to you today that beyond losing physical things and losing emotional things, Uh, Sometimes we're blind to see it, and on a day-to-day, we don't even recognize how much we've lost, but there was so much lost in that verse, in verse 5 of of chapter 3. Like when it said that she bit from that fruit to become like God, and the ground was cursed, and she was cursed, and all the generations were cursed, there was so much spiritual loss, not just the loss of heaven, but the loss of life, the loss of identity, the loss of authority from which everything else stems, intimacy with God. It said in the scriptures that Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the cool of the day, that they, would, they were named by their creator. They were never named by a political system. They were never named by a slave owner. They were never named by anybody else other than the one that created them. They had complete joy and purpose every day of their life, and it was lost just like that. And this is sometimes what I think we're not awakened to when we think about the idea of discipleship, is that discipleship is ultimately not about believing in something and going to heaven when we die. Discipleship is is receiving all that God has for us in our life to to go back to the garden, to be representatives, to have relationship, uninterrupted relationship and uninterrupted identity and authority with him, to know him and to be like him, to know him and make him known, to have relationship with him and represent him. It is so much more than a church program. It is is uh, reconciling back to, to what our original intent is, what the garden 
has always said about us. And so as, as little Adam's Eve's, we don't, we don't know what we're missing. We don't know what's lost, but, but we, f- we feel it all the time. I mean, you realize, like, Adam never put his head down at night and felt the ache of loneliness that we often feel. There's, there, there, you know, like, like we, we accept this as a norm that we will never be understood. Maybe by our mom, maybe, but probably not. Like, we will never fit in in this world. And we don't talk about this lie or think about this lie, but we, we, we hold this lie deep in our character, in our actions, and we lay our head down at night, and we really, we really do get haunted by this, this, this fear of isolation and this fear of lack of intimacy. We're, we, we experience it every day, way more than a lost computer. We experience lack of, of intimacy and false intimacy, and we search it on websites, and we search it in our friends, and we, and we desire this, this place where we can be ourselves and, and, and to be deeply known and to be deeply loved. And, and it's, so, um, it, it's so fleeting in, in trying to find that. And, and we, we, we settle for some shell of that to, to, to be fancier or smile more or dance better so that people would accept us and to know us. And we just had it in Eden and, it's, and it was all lost. And, and, and we are fearful of our authority and we're scared of other authority and we don't practice it. We don't represent them. And you do what you're going to do and I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And Nobody's right and nobody's wrong and everybody just kind of gets along and they're, they're, the idea of, of authority, of covering, of, of rule, I mean, it's just tainted. It's absolute, you know, power corrupts absolutely and, and so the whole doctrine has changed. It's so much more than believe in somebody and go to heaven when you die. And so Jesus returns and in light of that statement, we understand now this statement, the whole message of what he gives is so much more than just go get somebody to get baptized. It is the whole process of becoming a new human is the process of getting back to the garden. This is what Jesus' message was, and this is what it continues to say unapologetically. And John, absolutely, it says, anybody that believes in me and confesses in me will not die but taste eternal life. And that's, that's a message I don't want to mess with today, and discipleship is not the same thing as salvation. You could, you could receive and believe uh, in Jesus for salvation and never do another thing in your life, and God loves you because he loves you, and you are set aside and apart for his purposes and plans for eternity. But there are many that will be baptized that won't follow. And this is the message, though. Like, this is the message of why we're here, not to believe in something and to go to heaven when we die. But this is what Jesus continues to preach as his primary message. Verse 14 in Mark chapter 1, but also in other parts and renditions of other gospels. Verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. And it says, listen, the time has come. That word time is not chronos time like it's 10 o'clock in the morning. It's a, chron- it's a kairos time. It's like heaven is moving. Heaven is changing. The climate is different. Take advantage of this. Know this. Be aware of what's changing. The kingdom of heaven, which was not near, is now near. This is his whole message. Jesus did not preach, pray a prayer, and go to heaven. He preached, the kingdom of heaven is here. Repent and believe. That's what he continued to preach all his life. He says, the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe in the good news. And then it says, in verse 16, Jesus goes down to the beach in Galilee and he goes and meets some people, and he, 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 uh, he, he activates that theology, like he invites people to that message. So it's not just an informational proclamation, it's an incarnational invitation, like, come and do this with me. This is, this is the application of this theology, of this kingdom theology. I came to bring the garden back. Intimacy, identity, authority, all in two words. Probably the most two important words in the whole New Testament. Follow me. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw his, uh, 
He saw Simon, his brother Andrew, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And he says, come and follow me. No, no doctorate degree. I'm not going to sit down and walk through Genesis. Just, just come follow me. If you've ever been, um, I was in New Orleans for a wedding the other day. Go to a new place. And you can find your way around, if you're, especially if you have any aptitude beyond me, because I'm so geographically challenged, like by just wandering. Like you'll learn some stuff, you know, about New Orleans, like just by walking around. And what I love about, peop- about life in 2019, because I don't know how I'd get along if it was, you know, 2001, honestly, if, even so long ago, but like the fact that you can just plug in a GPS coordinate and get where you're trying to go, it is awesome to have a map in a new place. There's such a thing as wandering. There's such a thing as having a map. But beyond even those two things, to have a guide, like to have somebody that's like, all you have to do is don't get away from me and you'll figure all this out. This is what Jesus is saying. This is why children can understand the kingdom of God, even if they don't have a doctorate degree. Because the whole point is not to know all the things or get all the things or understand all the things, be able to explain all the things. The whole thing is, is follow me. Be next to me, and I'll show you. And this is what's such good news to us today because he could have said just, I'm the life, come find me somewhere. He could have said, I'm the truth, believe in what I say, but that he doesn't only say that, right? In John, he says, I am not just the, just the life, I'm not just the truth, but what does he say? I am the way to the truth and the life. Like, I'm gonna be your guide in this thing. You don't have to know about the, the one-way streets and the north and the south and the east and the main street and the fourth. You don't have to know about all those things. The only thing you have to know is my name. And if you know my name and you shout out my name, I will be near to you. And as you draw near to me, you will follow me and I will show you the way, the truth, and life. And so these are the two most important words, I believe, in all the New Testament scriptures. Kingdom of heaven's here. If you want to get to it, if you want righteousness, peace, and joy, if you want to restore to the garden, if you want back everything that was lost and taken, if you want back everything you gave up, if you want to be restored and redeemed, don't get a doctorate degree, just come follow me. Say yes to me. Have a faith when I speak and say yes to me with all of your life. And it was all their life. They dropped their nets, they followed him, they gave everything. I mean, it wasn't just a two-hour sermon. I mean, it was like 24-7 immersion. It was seven days a week, following, repenting, believing, repenting, believing, repenting, believing. This is the way we want to talk about discipleship at City Lights And it's so important that we define it the same way and use it, the language the same way, because words create worlds. And if we're not careful about what it is we're doing when we say discipleship, then groups won't matter and sermons don't do anything and our time together won't actually be effectual because we forget our purpose. And there's so much stuff to do in church. There's so many things to get busy with in church. But none of that's more important than the original mission of what he's called us to do to Matthew 28 to make disciples. Simple statement that I want to unpack today, but as the elders have discussed for the summer and reading different books and studying the scriptures, this is what we try to land on. A disciple is somebody who follows Jesus, repents and believes daily, moment by moment, continually, sees things that Jesus does different than them and says, I choose your way. I agree with you. Sees the culture, sees the options, sees the different ideas and says, no, but this guy's got the garden, so I'm going to go ahead and follow him. I'm following Jesus. I'm leaving my nets in my way, and I'm following him. And I'm not just kind of like following him into like what I want him to lead me into. Like, Lord, don't you want me to, f- I'm going to follow you right into being rich. Like, it's to, it's to look like him. So that's where the scriptures come in. We have to look at the 
aggregate of his life. We have to look at the summation and the kind of snapshot of everything he did, not just the part that we like. You know what I mean? Like that's where we get in trouble is like, oh, he fed the poor, so what I'm going to do is just feed the poor, and that's how it's all going to work. No, he did a lot more than that. He did a lot more than just that. He did a lot of things, and so it's not some of him and some of me. No, it's I want all of you, and I'm going to give all of me to that yes. I want to look like you, God. It's not going to be fun all the time. It's not going to be attractive all the time. It's not going to be rewarding all the time. But I'm here to bear your image. I want to go back to the garden. I want to reflect you. I want to rule like you. I want to do what you would do if you were me. And this is what disciples said. And there are so many ways that we can get distracted away from what Jesus actually was. Dallas Willard says it this way, and you've heard me kind of steal his quote. Uh, but there's a genius quote that discipleship is living the way that Jesus would live if he were you. If he got into your skin and had your job with your spouse and your kids or your friends and your amount of money, what would he be doing with that life? Mike Green says that to be a disciple is to grow in the character of Jesus, not just the characteristics, the character and the competency of Jesus. You know, like um, you don't remember probably um, everything that your parents said to you. You don't remember everything your third grade teacher said. But I would venture to guess that if you could try and drum up the smell of their perfume or cologne or remember the sound of their shoes when they got ready for a night out, you could remember not the words but the character of your parents. You can remember their essence, right? How you felt in the room. And this is, this is ultimately what Jesus is saying is that the greatest gift that we can give to God and the greatest gift we can give to ourselves and in our world really isn't our words, it's our character. It's like, our essence, it's not just the one thing we did that one time. It's the things we continually do, the habits, the ethos, the rhythms, the character of life. That is ultimately the only gift that we give to our kids, the only gift that we give to our world. What is our character saying about us? Not our rules, not our doctrine, not our aspirations. Our, our daily rhythms. A couple of questions to consider as we think about what a disciple is. If someone were to follow you, on a handy cam and not cut anything out and you didn't know that they were there, if they followed you yesterday, would they see a life that represented Jesus? Would they see a life, if, especially let's say if you weren't allowed to talk, if it was just action, if they were just seeing your 80%, right, of, of your sharing with the world is body language, if they were just to look at your body language and your choices, would it look like him? Because we're here to look like him. Like that's why we're here and then also kind of why we're at church is not just to feel better about life, it's to look like him. It's to extend his rule. It's to multiply his glory into the earth by way of sonship and family. And so the question is, is if we were to follow you around, do you look like him? If someone were to imitate your life and do what you did the way you do it, talk, tone, gesture, mannerism, would that look like him? Are we sharing our life and imitating? If Jesus were to get in your skin and walk around, would he, uh, what would it look like? These are the questions of discipleship. All right, let's play a quick game. Raise your hand if you um, have been uh, following Jesus uh, for five years or more. Raise your hand, five years or more. Look at that. So good, so good, so good. Keep them raised. We're going to multiply by two each time because multiplication is the word of the day. Ten years or more. Think back of 10 years, 2019, so that's 2009. Got a strong crew here. I love that. Keep your hand raised. 10 times 2 is 20. 20 years or more. Some of us are not 20 years old yet, so we might be lying in church. 
keep them up. We're going to go all the way to the last and clap for the last person. The next would be 40 years. Oh, that's a long heritage. Okay, we got some back here, 40 years. I guess we can't say 80 years. Let's go up to 50 years. 50, Rusty, 60. Oh, Rusty, I'm going to have a Rusty. Rusty, I had a news, you man. I was prepping for the sermon. I'm like, I'm going to go find Rusty. Rusty, you are a faithful brother, and um, I'm thankful for that because um, it's not just following. It's like following for a history of time. And time matters, you know, like time matters in the kingdom. And, and there's, there's ways that we find Jesus and follow Jesus in our 50th year that are different and distinct. Um, and we're thankful for you, Rusty. But um, I want you to think about the number that you had in your mind, whatever, seven years. And I want you to think about uh, some of these questions in light of somebody else that, you know, or maybe for yourself as well, but you or somebody that you know that's been following Jesus as long as you have. And, uh, and I want to put up on the screen some of the fruits of the Spirit. These are Galatians, right? So this is some of the ways that we would measure what Jesus looked like. And we're not fruit-focused people. Like, Jesus didn't tell you to just go and be nicer. He said, follow me. And then, you know, the tree that's abided in him bears this kind of fruit. So the orange tree doesn't have to focus on making an orange. And the, and the, and the Jesus follower doesn't have to focus on a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a character development class. That's not what this is. But, but in many places in the Gospels, he'll see Jesus do something really kind of scary and kind of like convicting, and he'll go up to a tree that doesn't have fruit on it, and he'll make comments about that. And he'll say, this fruit, this tree, you know, should be bearing this kind of fruit, and it's not, even out of season is what it says. So these are some of the fruits of the Spirit. I want you to think about people that you know, and I want you to just ask yes or no, do you know somebody that is, that is following Jesus or worshiping Jesus or really loves Jesus, but, like, hasn't smiled in, like, six years. Like, this is very possible. Like, we're going through this list, right? Like, it is very possible to be, to be following Jesus and maybe following Jesus in different parts of our life. Like, this is where the whole metaphor breaks down because for them, geographically, they were either following or they were at home. Like, that was it. But in the Christian thing, there's this ethereal idea that we're, like, following him in this, like, non-geographical sense and so it's very possible to have some of these fruits but be really not great in these other ones. How many of you guys know somebody that's been following Jesus as long as you that in traffic they don't drive patient? Like that's not the fruit that is, that is coming out. And, and here's the thing, right? Like we're all in process. Nobody's saying let's be perfect and tomorrow we're supposed to be like Jesus. But I'm talking about for seven years, like never lets this sink in. This isn't where Jesus is going. Like this is what I'm saying. It's like it's, it's not just not there. It's like not moving there. Do you see what I mean? Like stuck. Stuck in his strength, like stuck because I, you know, I guess because I pray a lot, I can just be rude in traffic or not tip. I love Tom Rolston. He's always got these great preacher jokes. He's like, brother, I'll tell you, he was like, the, the, the three worst tippers, you know, in the industry are, all start with P, and that's plumbers, policemen, and preachers, brother. They're the worst. Katie Fink, I'm just back there, right, setting up with kids, and she's like, oh my gosh, the church crowd at Starbucks is just awful, and you're like, what? We just, our whole point is to look like Jesus and we can't, we're still yelling at the people, you know? I, I mean, but, but it's, it's funny, right? But it's also like super convicting. It's like, okay, my whole point is to follow Jesus to look like him, but nothing in my life looks like him. Like nothing, I couldn't point to one thing that looks any different 
on the inside of my life than the outside. How many of you guys um, know somebody who's like 60 years old in the spirit in one area of life, but then like six in another? Like could preach and prophesy off the walls, but when it comes to getting into an argument with somebody else, they act like a six-year-old. Maybe that's us. Like there's possible ways that we can be 50 in our understanding of the word and two in our understanding of how to steward finances. And how many of you guys know he wants to disciple all of it? Sharon had such a great word. We were talking about this in the frontline meeting the other day, but she's like, sometimes we get stuck in our weaknesses, but then sometimes we get stuck in our strengths because we get this one niche of this thing and we're so good at it. It's our gift. It's our right hand. And we're like, man, my job, this is what I do. I, you know, I'm super hospitable and I just invite people to the house. And you say, well, how much scripture do you, like compared to 10 years ago, if we're growing to look like him and follow him, and that looks like repenting to his truth, how much truth is in that hospitality? How much, like, are you growing in these areas of the scripture? Do you know the difference between Revelation and John? Like, do you know the author and the intent? Do you know, like, and the answer to these questions is like, no, I don't have to because I'm hospitable. And Jesus is going, you can't just follow me on Monday and not on Tuesday. Like, it's your whole life. I want to give you all of it. And you need to trust me for all of it. And you need to ask me for all of it. And so this is my, my general point. And, and I'm, going to, I'm going to talk about it in the scriptures because right now this is just a social experiment. But this is my point. And you know it's true because you walked for 50 years like this, right? It is completely possible to love, know, trust, accept, honor, worship, praise, and anything else, Jesus, without following him or looking like him for 20 years. Like, like um, I, I remember there was a kid that came uh, to City Lights one time that he was in my youth group and he was like, not so much following the Lord as much. And he was like, I just remember I was just so bummed and hurt. I came to the community and I wanted to see something different and follow something different and become like something different, to be set apart for something else. And it was like, we would get, and I'm telling you, it, it, in youth group, I mean, we would just really emphasize the, emphasize the presence of God. We just believed, and I don't believe this statement anymore, but the statement was always like, if you get somebody into a real encounter with God, life change is inevitable. And I'm here to tell you from experience and the scriptures, and you're free to find out on your own, that's not true. Judas was in his presence all the time and did not look like him. And he said they would get in there and pray and prophesy. And I'm, I'm telling you, it was real. Like God was in the room. People were experiencing. There was tears. There was real emotion. And he said, but at the end of the day, the parking lot would always be the kids that would go off into the woods and go get high. Like, you guys realize, like, just before the Rwandan genocide, right? Back in the 90s when a whole bunch of people got slaughtered and killed. Just before that, do you know that there was a massive revival in there where just thousands of people came to Jesus? And just like five to ten years later, there was a massive civil war of bloodshed? What does that say about salvation? What does that say about sanctification? I'm not, I'm not saying that people aren't going to heaven. I'm saying it's very possible to know God and not look like him. It's very possible to feel the love of God and not repent and believe. That's very possible. It's actually very common to feel the peace of God, to come into his presence and, and feel his peace and his joy. And he will give that to you for free. How many people came up to him and he just, he, he, he blessed them. He didn't ask them questions. You need to do this. He just blessed them. But when the rich young ruler came to him and asked him, what does it mean to follow you? And Jesus gave him the cost, it was too high. And Jesus didn't chase him. He did not follow. So what I'm saying is it's very possible to know God, very possible to worship God and to know his scriptures. This is what it was saying in the scriptures. Like how many times does he say, 
you, you know, Jesus, we prophesied in your name and we saw many great things. We ministered to the poor. He says, but I didn't know you. He said, I searched the scriptures. You searched the scriptures the way the dog is the verb, to look into the scriptures, looking for meat and, and trying to find out, but you didn't find me. You didn't know me. And many will call to me and say, Lord, Lord, like we, we worshiped you, but you didn't follow me. Like this is what the scriptures continually show us and teach us is that he didn't say believe and go to heaven, although he did say that. His primary message was follow me into the garden, to follow me into intimacy, identity, and authority. All right, we doing good? Um, I want to show a video. I'm going to segue it. Just give me just my three minutes to get into this video that I think visualizes for us, I think, what discipleship actually looks like, like what it actually means, not two hours on a Sunday, like 24-7. And, and what the video, I think, illustrates for us in a really fun caricature kind of way, which I picked because of that thing in the hokey music, is that discipleship was not about conveying information. Discipleship was about an immersion process for these disciples. Like the reason why these disciples weren't just beggars leading others to the bread. It was like these disciples were replications of him. That Peter, Paul, and John did what he did if he were there. They were preaching the kingdom. They were healing the sick. They were teaching and instruction, instructing and raising up families the way that Jesus... Like They were complete replicas. They were not incomplete. And the reason why is because they didn't buy into an informational transaction. They bought into an immersion experience. So their experience was kind of like, like if, and it's not so much anymore because everything's so Americanized, but like when you go to a new country, like you're exhausted by the end of the day because you don't realize how much automatic cultural stuff goes on in your head when you're in a comfortable spot. When you go to a new place, like nothing's taken for granted. It's like, where am I? I mean, nowadays there's Google and all that stuff, and I really don't think that we, the metaphor doesn't even work as well today as it used to 20 years ago. But you'd go to a place and be like, what is that smell? Why does it smell so bad? I had a guy like have a digestion problem, and he's in India, and they didn't send him to the doctor. They sent him to a head masseuse, and I've got a video, which is pretty great, and I probably could and should put it on YouTube to make money for our church and not for me. But this doctor is smacking this guy in the back of the head as hard as he can. Because he believes that's going to help him get to the bathroom faster. Okay, there's, like, when we go into new cultures, it's an immersion process. The reason why kids don't learn Spanish in four years in high school is because it's an instruction process, but you learn it in six months is because it's an immersion process. It's your saturated 360, 24-7, all the way around in every area of life. Nothing is safe. Everything is is under the auspices. Everything is under the influence and the rule of that new kingdom that God's bringing. And he was not messing around for the three years. I mean, they were constantly put in sink or swim scenarios. They were in front of demoniacs. They're out in waves. And they had one choice, repent or fall. Repent or fall. Repent or believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. They were constantly put in positions where you're like, oh my goodness, like if I'm supposed to be like that, I've got a lot to grow in. And I want to talk about this next week about the discipleship process. Today's focus on what a disciple is. Tomorrow's next week's talking about the process of it. So I'm getting ahead of myself. But the point is, is that the reason why, the reason why I think they would see so much fruit in three years and maybe we wouldn't see fruit in 30 years is because we do it two hours at a time on an instruction basis and they did an immersion process. They were constantly in places where they had to repent. They had to change the way they thought. They couldn't, you know, hide things into the dark. It was constantly, constantly in the light. And, and, and so this, this is what the process would look. Let's roll this video right here. It's about three minutes. It's all about what 
a discipleship process would look like and what it is, who a disciple is. Let's play the video starting now. To be a disciple means we're learning to be like Jesus, growing in his character while learning to do the things he could do, developing his competencies. It's about character and competency. To do this, we increasingly pattern our life after the life of Jesus. So one of the questions we have to ask is how Jesus would pattern his life if he had your job, if he had your personality type, your family situation, lived where you lived, or made the same amount of money that you make. When we examine the life of Jesus in the Gospels, what we see emerge is a particular way of relating to the world around him. He is very intentional in how he used his time to invest in certain kinds of relationships. It's the pattern of his whole life and ministry. Put another way, Jesus had three great loves that his entire life oriented around. In Mark 9, 2 through 29, we see Jesus go up a mountain to pray. But this wasn't abnormal for Jesus, was it? Throughout his life, he was constantly getting away from the crowds and everyone else to spend time with his first love, attending to the upward dimension of his life, his relationship with his father. We then see him come down the mountain and run straight into the people he's investing his life into, his disciples. Jesus was never ambiguous about who his spiritual family was. In attending to the inward dimension of his life, Jesus spent more than 50% of his time with just his spiritual family and no one else. But then he steps out into the full brokenness of the world, driving out an evil spirit from a troubled boy. Jesus attends to the outward dimension by dealing with sin head on. He's concerned with how sin affects individuals, how each person is separated from God because of their sin and doomed because of it. And he's concerned that when you get a bunch of sinful people together, they create systems of sin and injustice. Sin creates individual problems and communal problems. Jesus stepped out and brought hope to both. Three great loves. He was deeply connected to his father. He was constantly investing in those his father had given him to disciple and to be spiritual family with and he entered into the brokenness of the world with good news and asked for a response individually and communally. To be disciples of Jesus, we pattern our life in the same way that Jesus did, up, in, and out. Most people are naturally good at one. They're okay at a second, and they're fairly bad at a third, but rather than simply playing to our strengths, we commit to be learners. The invitation of Jesus is to pattern our life after his, to learn his ways, and to let his power be made perfect in our weakness. But we also recognize that because a collection of Christians is the body of Jesus, we want the full expression of Jesus, not just parts of it, so that these three dimensions saturate community life as well. Whether it's a group of eight people or a group of 8,000, when a group of people is committed to truly being the body of Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins stoking the fires of a red-hot center by which people can't help but be drawn into the warmth of. When we have a spiritual family learning to live into up, in, and out in a communal way, people the Lord has prepared can't help but be drawn in because this community is the gospel made visible. 
Okay, so three dimensions of Jesus' life, patterning things off of the deep devotions and love that Jesus held in his heart, up and in and out. Those three words I want to hang on to and get to those in just one second. I want to deal with those words in just a second. But, um, but ultimately, the saturation process, the immersion process, was just continual opportunities like children, people, um, karate instructors, you know, the things that we're doing. We don't just need one moment in time. We need continual opportunities to learn, to grow, to fail, to change, to fail fast and get up and, and learn quickly. This is how learning happens. The kids in Spanish class that are embarrassed to not try the words usually learn it slower because they're afraid to fail at it. And the whole discipleship process was not about getting it right and planning it. It was like, get out there and go and do it. Get out there and go and try. It's getting into the pattern of Jesus' life and, and seeing that saturation not only take place from the inside out, but sometimes by way of ethos, move its way from the outside. And, and there's two words that I want us to stick with us from this passage this morning about the kingdom of heaven, because the kingdom of heaven is available to all. It's near to all. It's no nearer to you than it is to me, than it is to the guy next door. The kingdom of heaven is near, but the one, the one who responds and what the scripture says in Mark 1, as well as in Matthew 3, is that the, the one who receives the kingdom is not just the one that's near it, but it's the one that repents and believes. Everybody say repent, and everyone say believe. There are some people, and I want to get into this chart in just a second, that are heavy repent people. Repent people, this, this kind of idea or culture or way is like, the repent is like, let's get in small group and just talk about our sin as much as we possibly can. Like, you just tell me how bad you are, and I tell you how bad I am, and we never do anything about it, but we just feel better about at least saying that we're bad, you know? And, and the scriptures are very clear. We don't have time to get into the idea of sin, but sin is very real. It is the essence of what takes us from intimacy, identity, and authority, and sin needs to be confessed. And First John says, if you don't confess your sin one to another, like it says, you confess your sin so that you may be forgiven. Confessing your sin one to another allows you to be healed. And in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul, who is very much a representative of Jesus in representing his rule, says in Romans 7, I do what I don't want to do. And I don't do the things that I want to do and that even though I'm created and being made new in my character all the time, I need to take account and bring into the light the fact that the world is a magnet and there's metal in my flesh. And I am attracted to the world. And a church that doesn't confess, a life that doesn't confess, a father or a mother that is not actively repenting, like not the idea of I'm a sinner, but like I'm naming the sin that is in me and I'm submitting it to the authority of Jesus in the community of people that I'm with, a, a, a group that does not confess does not follow. A group that does not confess, that doesn't name the sin and talk about, you know, like how it needs to be powerless in Jesus' sight, it doesn't name it and hides it, will not see light and healing. So, so receiving the kingdom has to do with confession. It has to, do, it has to do with what is God saying and how am I not agreeing with him in my life? It's naming it. It's not like, it's like driving down the road and yelling at everybody and then calling that out the first year and not waiting 10 years from now and still doing that. It's, it's like, I'm, it's, it's, I don't do what I want to do. I need your help. It's going to him. It's like, I need, it's naming it. It's like, I want you to heal this in me. I'm naming it. I don't want it a part of me. It's confession. It's repentance. But there's, there's, con, there's confession people, there's repentance people that isn't believing. The believing people are the, I would say confession is the mirror and believing is the picture. There's an identity-based sanctification, which Charlie Boyd at Fellowship, who's way smarter than me, helped me give language to this. It just says, look, like, if I focus on the righteousness, if I think about elephants and think about, you know, my identity and who I'm in Christ, then all the other stuff kind of just disappears. 
And so there's this picture of seeing all that God has called me to be, seeing my identity, seeing who he is and who I am in him, that you focus on the new man and you don't cast your thoughts on the dark things. And that's really important because otherwise we're sitting around throwing sticks in the fire talking about how bad we are, but not realizing how good he's made us and righteous he's made us in Christ and, and, and empowered us to literally live out who he is on this earth. And so there's this tension between confession and belief, this tension between repentance and faith, this this tension between looking at the picture of Jesus and looking at the mirror of our life that we continually calibrate and follow. This is how we access the kingdom of heaven, through repenting and believing, through repenting. It's saying, this is who I'm not. But then it's not stopping there. It's saying, but this is who I am in you. Saying, "This this is what I've done. These are the actions. I mean, it's true. This is what I've done. And there's consequences to that relationally and legally. There's consequences. Like, this is what I've done. There's people, you know, they have this idea that, like, if you don't go to the doctor and admit that you have cancer, that that's going to heal you faster. No, it's like, you've got to go to the doctor, too. This is what reality is. Like, I've got to live here. Otherwise, it's not really a change. It's just waiting for the future or ignoring reality, honestly. So it's saying, like, this is what I've done, but this is who I am. And so I can, I, can, I can look straight in the face and confess what I've done. And I can stand firmly, though, and step forward in faith in who I am. There's lots to be said on that. And so I, I have a precursor all that because looking at some of these patterns, I want to throw these up here. And these are not condemnation things. These are just good reflection comments that the Lord loves to discipline his children. Discipline, like discipleship requires discipline. And these are repentance moments. These are get-to moments up here on the screen. These are questions that I want you to consider. Maybe take a picture of these to take home. You could use these for the rest of the year. The small group leaders and all the frontline leaders are looking at these questions and really asking themselves, if we're going to go make disciples, we have to be a disciple. We want to look like Jesus, not just on two hours of the weekend, but we want to be immersed in constant opportunities to repent and believe, repent and believe, to see where he is, to see where I'm not, and take a step towards agreeing with him and and following him. So if we take a picture of this, it's just three different um, areas uh, that, that you can get a hold of here, and I can, um, uh, I can absolutely text it to you or email it to you if you'd like the PDF version. But the three direct directions are up and in and out. Up, first and foremost, right here on this side of the screen. It's like, if I'm not living by the Spirit's power, if the idea of a devotion with him doesn't feel relational, it's not just go do it. It's like, why not? And what is it that's true that I don't understand yet? that he's the fountain of wisdom, that he, is, that he has come to restore who I am and give me back my identity. If, if I see a, a, a devotion, a time alone with him, a, a time to close the door, as Matthew 7 says, to go and be with my father, if that's not a get-to, if that's not a devotion, then what is it that I'm believing? What lie do I need to repent of to come home? Because he didn't come here for us to wait to get home. He came here so we could come home today. And so there's a power, there's just like, it's not a have to, it's like, come towards me, come know me. Like, like repent and believe. Don't just get stuck and be stuck for 20 years. Your children, your children's children need you to be intimate with your Father in heaven. You need to be intimate with your Father in heaven. This is, we, we, we spend time in, in being like Jesus and it becomes a prayer, not a plan. We plan for our 401k, we pray for our sanctification. No, like, like, Make it, a, like, leave your Bible out next to your bed when you go to bed. This is so important. Way more important than children's tuition. Lay your scriptures out. Like, be home with him. Repent, believe. In this area of life, like, sometimes there's corners and pockets of darkness in our life. I've seen some of these questions that, that just, like, they, they point to things in the mirror, you know? Like, 
A disciple of Jesus isn't following him if they never rest. If you work 80 hours a week and you don't know your family and your kids and you don't have joy, like, that's not identity. So it's not a guilt trip. It's an invitation. Get rid of that. Follow him. Repent. Believe. Repent. Like, it's, it's not one big altar moment. It's a million little decisions that allow for a transformation to take place. Is my, is my family healthy? Am I sleeping and eating well? Am I vulnerable with anybody in my life? Or, or, or is everybody in my life a, a, a way of, of putting on a mask? This is not what Jesus wants. How are my relationships? Do I have friends? Some of the guys in this church, like I heard a guy, a guy one time say, every woman just wants their husband to have friends. I don't know if that's true, but I mean, a lot, oftentimes guys will, will go through all their life and their life is their family. They have no friends. They have no companions. That's not how Jesus lived. And we look at the American dream and we look at what our dad said and we look at the older culture around us and we worship on Sunday, we sing our hearts out, but this doesn't look like him in our life at all. I've read a statistic that says that the average Christian never shares their faith with anybody outside the church, never does that, but still says that they are trying to follow Jesus. And the reality of what Jesus' pattern says to us in a saturated immersion lifestyle is like, that's not normal. Sometimes you, get around, you have to get around Jesus to redefine what normal is and redefine the dictionary, but it's like, am I running with perseverance? Am I sharing my faith? It's, it's not a have to, it's a get to. Like, I was speaking with Sharon the other day, this wonderful opportunity that she's had to sing this awesome Motown concert thing that we went and saw the other night, and it's like, it just feels good to get out of the church sometimes. And it's actually more normal and natural to talk about our faith because there's this affection that comes on you when you meet people that are outside the church and you're like, oh, this isn't weird. I'm not like, you know, amwaying people out here. Like, I really do love this person. And it's natural to want to share what, like, he's teaching me. And so the pattern is not complicated. It's like, go be alone with him. Jason Bordash went up to the mountains. I'm talking to him today. And it's like, we overestimate. Oh, I can pray in the car. I can pray when I'm talking to somebody. He's like, yeah, but you should also pray when you just close the door and you're all alone. And you need time alone. And if your life has no alone moments that aren't on your phone, that's not what Jesus looks like. And we can't expect to have the fruit of Jesus without following him. And so it becomes, okay, I need to have a plan, not just a prayer. Like, what's my plan? When am I gonna be alone? The pattern is up. It's, it's getting alone with him. It's, it's pouring your heart out to him and hearing what he has to say that's different from what you think. And slowly, not in one minute at the altar, but slowly transforming your mind, renewing your mind. That's what metanoia means. It's, it's to change the way you're thinking about things and allow his thoughts to interrupt yours. But then not just doing faith alone to come down the mountain, right? 50% of time was spent with a family. So what does it look like to process what he's saying with community? What's God saying to you? What's he been teaching you? What do you learn? Not just like, oh, football, ha, 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 I'm going to pray for you and keep it. No, like, what's he saying to you? How are you changing? How are you taking a step? How are you repenting and believing? And then he would just go out, and honestly, Jesus would just talk to people. I mean, he had no agenda. He would just share what the Father said as though they were already in the family. Like, he would just be like, you know, this is what God thinks about homosexuality. This is what God thinks about uh, alcohol. This is what God thinks about any number of things. Like, he would just, he would just talk. He would just share, this is what he thinks about money and rest and all the other things that everybody else is talking about. And he allowed them to choose in or choose away. He just said, this is what he has to say. He didn't drum it up or appetize it or commercialize it. He just said, this is what God's teaching me. What does it look like to process what's God saying and respond to it by yourself? What does it mean to process what God is saying and respond to it in community? What does it mean to go 
into every nine to five work and so that every point of life is not disintegrated, church life and normal life and family life and friend life. Every single thing is immersed in the kingdom of God that we might get back our identity again, our authority again and intimacy with him. I am going to um, pray and close us today and offer uh, opportunity. I told Timothy that maybe we had a closing song, but um, I want to give enough space to do city group signups. Um, uh, put up the screen real quickly on city groups. City groups are um, a repeatable rhythm of invitation and challenge. And we're going to talk about why people in our life, why the in part of that is so important and how it's supposed to work. And, and so uh, we have intention for this. Uh, actually, not that one, the one with the upward prayer and all that stuff. But we hope that city groups aren't just an informational time, that it's an immersion time, that it's a place where we're not just asked to like sit and watch, but to participate. And that on day one, we're going to ask as you join city groups to pray, to pray out loud, to pray relationally with him and, and make public what your private space looks like with him, your upward time, you know? And then there's three ends, food and fun, and we take ourselves way too seriously. And sometimes it's like that apostle, that evangelist just needs to learn how to have fun. And we're gonna have barbecue and that's great. And then we're gonna teach one another. We're gonna share. Like we want to be moving and be active and repenting and failing. We wanna fail at doing devotions together. We wanna create a space or it's safe to fail because if we're not trying, we're not learning. And disciple is a learner. Disciple means methetis. So we want to practice this together. We want to pray for one another and, and see that God has called us all to lay hands on the sick and on the poor and on our friends and pray, breakthrough. Some things need to be counseled out and some things need to be cast out. And one day, one, week by week, we're continuing to pray for one another into the deep places. And then lastly, every single group from the beginning, not like once we get to know each other, like from the beginning, we'll go out and seize the Great Commission as a command, not just an idea, and go out into taco places and Starbucks, I saw some people will do, and Miracle Hill and other places to serve, but we want to be doing, not just talking about the practices of making disciples. And so this is what it means we're going to talk about next week. It's a repeatable rhythm of invitation to challenges. It helps us follow Jesus to look like him, but that's what groups are all about. We're going to have some time to sign up out in the lobby. There'll be four computers if you want to do it there. If you are uh, more of an introvert, that's great. You can look on your phone and you can type with your thumbs. That's great too. You can also sign up all the next three weeks. Like I said, we're gonna have placements and rosters and this is a great time to invite somebody new into the group as well or somebody that's a neighbor that doesn't even go to this church that can go to the group as well. That's totally great. But we would love to see these be places that aren't perfect but are practicing models of what it looks like to repent and believe with all of our life. Let's stand and pray. And uh, I'll close our service this morning. I thank you for your patience. I know that it was longer and there was a lot that I was sharing uh, from my heart. But I do hope, uh, you know, Lord Jesus, that you would, you would really just like give us the whole thing. And I know that's a big prayer and sometimes it's scary to ask for because you answer those types of prayers. But God, that you're just going to immerse us, God, in your kingdom because it's worth it. And you've never made a promise you didn't provide for and you've never made a promise that isn't good. So we trust your hand and we trust your voice and we wanna look like you. And we don't want to pass on a faith to our children or our neighbors or our friends that talks about you, that doesn't look like you. We want the fruits of the spirit. We want the gifts of the spirit. We want the whole thing. We want up and in and out and up and in and out. We want all of the rhythms of grace in our life and power. And God, we just say right from the beginning, it's not from us. It's your power. We say yes to it, but you're the one that changes. And so God, with, with the plans that we make and the efforts that we give and the working out of our salvation, uh, with fear and trembling, God, we put them before you and we ask you to breathe on them. You would breathe on them and we know that you will. So we give our faith towards your grace and we know that we're gonna be met. We thank you that you're bringing us back to the garden as we follow.
bless you and trust you in Jesus. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.